We have been talking over these last couple of weeks and will continue in conversation throughout this month on the subject of Christian hope. Hope. Faith, hope, love, abide, these three, said the Apostle Paul. And as I've been trying to say, and others before me as well, hope makes a profound difference in our lives. I remarked last week at our contemporary services that hope is arguably the most powerful uh, force uh, on this earth. Uh, As an expression of the greater power that is God, hope, as it works its way into the lives of people, is one of the most transformative powers on earth. It can launch wise men on long, arduous journeys. It can inspire even the simplest of creatures to, to continue to endure and persevere against ferociously difficult circumstances where normal strength would give out. And the particular kind of hope that the followers of Jesus have is not to be confused with some of the shallower notions of this concept that are popular in our time. For example, as I suggested last week, Christian hope is not to be confused with irrational optimism. Uh, with a kind of Pollyanna orientation to life. It is not confidence that life is just going to get better on its own with time if left alone. It is not a belief in an evolutionary, uh, unstoppable evolutionary progress to things. Uh, Hope isn't comforting ourselves with the thought of escaping earth to a disembodied heaven. That is not what Christian hope, as the Bible writers and the early Christians Uh, understood it to be. As I want to stress to us today, Christian hope is the abiding peace and the forward-leaning energy that comes from living daily in the presence, power, and plans of a God of redemption, of a God of redemption. Now, I want to think about that particular word with you, if I may, for just a moment. I know we hear it often, but I want to uh, recontent it or fill it up with its proper content uh, as we have this conversation this morning. The word redemption is a really loaded word, whether in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek New Testament. The word redemption literally means to buy back in order to build up. That's the fullest sense of that word. Uh, To redeem is to buy something back from from bondage in order to fulfill its potential. It is to seek its freedom in order to establish its flourishing. That is the fullest sense of the word uh, redemption. Redeeming is what the Egyptian Potiphar did when he bought Joseph out of slavery and made him the head of his household where his gifts could be used and, and extended. Redeeming is what Boaz did when he rescued Ruth from hungry servitude and took her into his home and made made her his treasured life partner. It was for the redemption of Sodom and Gomorrah that Abraham pleaded with God. It was for the redemption of the Hebrew people that Moses went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. It was for the redemption of the Jews that Esther risked her life and went before the Persian king to plead for the people uh, of of Israel. It was for the redemption of Jerusalem 
that Nehemiah left behind his job in Persia's White House and put on a hard hat and set out with a construction crew for the broken down city of Jerusalem. Redemption aims to free people from whatever binds them so that they can fully flourish. Will you take that idea in with me? Uh, It is a purposeful buying them back in order to build them up. Now the Old Testament uh, continually pictures God as the inspiration for this pursuit of redemption. Uh, The Old Testament is constantly picturing God as someone who is profoundly concerned for the redemption of people. He wants to redeem them spiritually and psychologically and emotionally and physically and materially and and, um, in every conceivable sense. As N.T. Wright uh, says, God is concerned not just with souls but with wholes, with the whole of humanity. This is the concern of the biblical God. And so we hear of God as the one who wants to see cities rebuilt and vineyards replanted and covenants reestablished and exiled people returned. He's the Lord we see in the scriptures who moves to repair the broken and recover the lost and restore the stolen and refresh the weary and renew the worn out. And these redemptive themes, which are constantly being repeated all through the story of ancient Israel, um, these redemptive themes continue on and actually get intensified in the practice and the teaching of the Son of God in the New Testament. We see Jesus laboring long hours to heal the sick, to open up the eyes of the blind, to proclaim release to the captives, Uh, Jesus feeds the hungry. He takes note of the um, anonymous people, the invisible and forgotten people in the crowd uh, that nobody else is is really keying in on. Jesus is championing the cause of children and of women and of outcasts. We see Jesus crossing the religious and social uh, fences of his day to establish redemptive relationships with lepers and adulterers and Samaritans and Gentiles and hated soldiers and despised tax collectors. Uh, Jesus is moving towards them to establish resourceful relationship with all of these different kinds of people. And Christ actually tells his followers that God will assess their hearts on whether their hearts beat like God's heart does with a passion to bring hope to the least and to the last of society. Uh, This will be the the criteria, Jesus says, for the separation of the sheep and and the goats. And we see Jesus uh, uh, extending redemptive, resourceful, relationship-building kind of care, even with the most horrific kinds of people, even as they're trying to crucify him, actually have crucified him, Jesus is proclaiming forgiveness to the very enemies who hate him and are seeking his destruction. And Jesus pays the supreme price to buy humanity back out of its bondage to sin and to death. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he go to this length to reach out in all of these different kinds of ways. Why does he do it? He does it in order to free us from our sin 
uh, to free us from our inward-turned selfishness in order that we might flourish as God has originally intended us to do. This is the biblical story. This is the gospel, actually. This is the wholeness of the gospel. Is God's intention to redeem human beings and his creation, not just at the level of the soul, but at the level of the whole. Now, I tell you all of this because, and I know this is old hat for most of you, 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 you you've, you're all, you've been raised up in this, so many of you have, but I tell you this because for the very first two centuries of Christian history, of the common era, the early church took its direction from God's modeling and teaching on all of these precepts that I've just walked through. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, among the last words he spoke to them, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Take that in. The work the Father gave to me, I now give to you. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, says Jesus. And they will do even greater things than these. Because as the power of the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus actually says there, because I am going to the Father, they will do even greater works than these. Because Jesus, in ascending, would send the Holy Spirit, and now that one body of Jesus would be multiplied through the power of the Holy Spirit across a vast number of bodies the world over. Even greater things would we be able to do than Jesus as one individual could do. Now, Jesus had left his disciples with clear instructions that they were to continue the redemptive work that he had set in motion, that he and his father had been doing. Now, the good news was that they did not need to do the hardest work. They did not need to die to pay for their own sins. They did not need to, to, to sacrifice themselves upon the cross and take upon them the weight of the entire sin of the world to atone for humanity's separation from God. That work Christ did uniquely. That work Christ had done completely by himself. He was the only one qualified for that kind of redemptive work. But everything else, everything else that the Father and the Son had been doing to redeem this world, to reach out to people in all of the various conditions of unresourcefulness or brokenness, all of that, all the work that had been modeled by the Father and the Son about helping relationships here operate with the kind of love and justice and mercy and responsibility and beauty of the kingdom of heaven this the early church was commissioned to continue to do and to make more disciples who would do like likewise, to multiply, to send out the rings of influence until there were millions of people working for the redemption of the whole as Jesus had modeled and the Father had insisted upon uh, throughout the Scriptures. And so, this is what the early church set out to do until the day when God's will 
would be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. They set about this task. And as the book of Acts describes in detail, they established, in a sense, the very first earthly colony of the kingdom of heaven. The the first beachhead of the heaven which Jesus had taught would come to earth and marry earth one day as gets described at the end of the book of Revelation. And so amidst a highly segregated society, the early church was the remarkable place where rich and poor, slaves and landowners, Jews and Gentiles, black, brown, white, worshipped, grew, served alongside of each other as as a message of hope to a world that was so fragmented The early church was this remarkable colony of heaven. They challenged wrongdoing where they saw it. They stood up to power. They advocated for justice with the governments in their lands. They cared for the poor and the vulnerable while also insisting on every able body bringing their gifts, working as they could to strengthen the whole community. They lived a life of enormous balance and beauty. They proclaimed the cross of Christ and the need for the repentance of sin while also becoming renowned as a community of remarkable love, hospitality, and joy. And as the times went on, many, many people were attracted to the hope of the kind of society that they were shaping, the kind of hope that that way of living offered to our broken world. So free and flourishing was the way of life of the early church that as Acts 2 reports, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. You can't even build a church in a neighborhood anymore because people are, see churches as a negative influence on the society, uh, as a parking problem, as a bunch of just pinch-faced angry people. The early church enjoyed the favor of all of the people, we're told. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And within a few generations, the radiant influence of that once tiny colony of heaven transformed the Roman Empire. It began to shape what we call Western civilization, It renewed the institutions of humanity with a reverberating blessing that has spread down even to our day. Now, it was not easy for the early Christians to do this. I don't think we should be naive. This sounds like a very romantic story. It was a difficult struggle every step of the way because the selfishness and the prejudices and the categories and the competition of the surrounding cultures was always pulling on them, was always challenging them as, the, as those pressures challenge you and me every single day. In fact, the apostles write a lot about that struggle. I mean, you just read your way through the epistles and you see, I mean, there was a lot of struggle going on in the early church. They were not living this out perfectly. We're not living this out perfectly. But Paul urged the church to hold fast to the hope of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Paul Paul was constantly urging the church not to give up this vision of redemption 
that they had been given, this whole gospel that they had been given. And so he writes to the church at Corinth. Uh, I often think of Corinth as the Chicago of our day, or their day. It was a cosmopolitan city, uh, much like ours. Um, not, not an imperial city, not the capital city, but a, an enormous city of, of industry and of um, sophistication. So, so Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Why does he have to say that? Because they're being moved. Because they're they're wavering, they're they're losing their focus, they're getting distracted by the world around them. He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why does he have to say that? Because they're not giving themselves fully to the work of the Lord. They're diversifying their interests and their attentions and their allegiances to all other kinds, many different kinds of kingdoms other than the kingdom of heaven. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And then he closes out by saying, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because you can trust, says Paul here, that as you work for the redemption, the extension of this gospel hope, your labors are not in vain. How could he be so sure of that? They were just a tiny group of people at this point in history. There were not many Christians across the world. Rome was gigantic and powerful, and, and it was the dominant culture of the day. How could he say with such assurance, your labor is not in vain? Well, the answer lies in the very first word of that statement. What's the first word in that statement? Can we pull it back up again? No, we can't. The word is, therefore, that we did. Therefore, therefore, therefore. Every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, that's your cue to go back and reread the passage you just read. Because, because the whole key to what's coming next lies in what just has been said. And the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, before verse 58, that begins, therefore, The entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a discussion of the encounters that the church had had with the resurrected Jesus. It's a litany of the multiple encounters different people and groups of people have had with the resurrected Christ and and a discussion of the implications if Christ is indeed raised from the dead. What Paul is really saying here is that the reality of the resurrection alters everything about the way we will come at life. The early church was absolutely convinced that what God had done in raising Jesus from the grave proved three things, at least three things. Preachers like three things. First, it proved that every other promise and teaching of Jesus could be relied upon. It could be trusted. Why? Because the most outrageous promise he ever made was, they're going to crucify me. I'll be dead and buried, and three days later, I'll be back. And if he had kept that promise, it meant that everything else he said about life, every other counsel he'd given us about how to go about living life could also be trusted. 
Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus proved that they no longer needed to fear death themselves. And they didn't. I mean, they were afraid of pain. Who wouldn't be? They were afraid of losing, at least momentarily, their loved ones. You'd have to be. But in staggering numbers, they went to their death in, 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 in the, the Roman forums and under tremendous uh, torture, proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ over even death itself. Thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus' ravaged body into the glorious form that they had met on Easter meant that Christ truly had the power to reclaim and to renew the entire material world. They read the vector of Christ's resurrection. If God could do that with that destroyed a body, he could do it everywhere. He could do it in every way as Jesus had promised. So the first Christians realized that their ultimate future didn't lie in some disembodied uh, life in the clouds. That wasn't their future. Because Jesus had come back physically to them, materially to them. When Jesus came back in the end of the time, God was going to bring heaven fully to earth. God would do for their bodies and for the whole material creation the glorious work of renewal that they had seen inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus' body. What's an inauguration? We should be especially mindful of that this week. It's just the beginning. It's just a marker of the start of the new administration. And the resurrection of Jesus was the inauguration of the full unfolding of the kingdom of God. So like school children in a Chicago winter who've just seen an unmistakable sign that summer is definitely on its way, Christ's followers say in effect, we can't wait. We can't wait. And there's a double entendre in that statement. They were immensely excited about the prospect that Jesus was going to come back and that the heaven and the earth would be married together as Revelation describes. They were so excited about that coming summertime, in a sense. But, but that future was such a wonderful eventuality, they couldn't imagine just sitting still and waiting for it. They, they, they ran into the closet and got their beach umbrellas. They began to pull together the, the, the plans they had for the summer. They began to organize their wardrobe for the coming sunshine. They immediately started to rearrange their lives and the life of as much of society as they could possibly influence to prepare for that coming age. They couldn't wait. I think sometimes when I look at the church today, when I look actually at my own self today, that we've wandered a long way from that kind of hope. Um, I think that's the truth. I, I think it's an uncomfortable thing to look at, but I think that's the truth. 
Uh, as N.T. Wright observes, you know, if you think about it, there are two extremes towards which Christian people have tended to slide over the years. On the one side, there are those who declare that the single main Christian task is to build the kingdom here on earth through social, political, and cultural revolution. There's been a whole bunch of folks who have said that's the main job of the church. Alas, he says, this social gospel has singularly failed to deliver the goods. An enormous amount of good has been done. Uh, Social conditions have improved vastly. But, writes N.T. Wright, we are still a fragmented, frightened, and battered world. We have failed to help enough people deal with the root illness of sin that will always wreck our social projects until people truly come to the feet of Jesus and repent of sin. The social gospel cannot save us. It will do good things. It cannot bring about the whole redemption that God has in mind. At the other end of the scale, writes right, have been uh, other people who declare that nothing can be done until the Lord returns and that everything is put to rights then. The forces of evil, they argue, are too entrenched and nothing save a great apocalyptic moment of divine power can address those things or change the deep structures of the way things are. And so we should just get on, such a view says, with the real business of the gospel, which is that of saving souls for the future world. For the future world, we will do band-aid activities to look after the people at the very bottom of the pile, but we won't do anything about the structures that actually put them there and keep them there. Because we don't live for this earth, we live for that disembodied heaven. Have you ever heard echoes of either of those worldviews in your experience with church, in Christian voices? N.T. Wright goes on. The difficulty with these views, as popular as they are, is that neither of them begins to do justice in any sense to Paul's injunction to be steadfast and immovable in doing the work of the Lord because in the Lord our labor is not in vain. When we integrate what should never have been separated in the first place, says Wright, when we integrate the kingdom inaugurating public work of Jesus and his redemptive death and resurrection on the cross, we find that the Gospels tell a different story than we've been told or have been telling ourselves. They tell a story much more like the early church actually understood and lived on. It is the story of God's kingdom being launched on earth as it already is in heaven. It is a story of generating a new state of affairs in which the power of evil has been decisively defeated, the new creation has been decisively launched, and Jesus' followers have been commissioned and equipped to put that victory and that inaugurated new world into practice when? Now. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of redemption. 
On April the 16th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a Baptist pastor, sat in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. He was there because he had mounted a nonviolent protest against a, um, the violent actions of Sheriff Bull Connor and against the dehumanizing practices that were commonplace in that city that had been entrenched for a very long time in many cities. Dr. King's heart ached. He ached with sadness that more of the good people of the American church had not taken more courageous action to strive for the redemption of racial relationships in our world and to strive for the welfare of all of the people of our world. And several clergymen had, had written to Dr. King. They had told him to just wait, quote, unquote, for the courts to act and for the laws to change. There will be evolutionary progress, they were saying. Just give things time and things will heal themselves. It's already in motion, is what they said. But in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, I really encourage you, go home, Google this, read this. It's an essential part of American history and of church history. Uh, Dr. King writes these words explaining why, as agents of Christian hope, we can't wait to do what God wants done now. We can't. We must be leaders of the redemptive work. There was a time, writes Dr. King, when the church was very powerful. There was a time when the church of Jesus Christ was very powerful. In those days, the church, and I quote, was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that changed the mores of society. The early church brought an end in the ancient world to infanticide, to gladiatorial contests. Two of the greatest institutions of that day, the early church, brought an end to them. If the church, writes Dr. King, of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring. It will forfeit the loyalty of millions. It will be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for this century. King continues, I hope, I hope, I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour because we can't wait any longer. The time is always ripe to do right. It has now been 50 years since Dr. King penned those words. There are many improvements that have been made along the way. Our outgoing president has recently affirmed that himself from his perspective. But there are also many areas of our society that need to be set right still. There is the economic hopelessness, the family breakdown, the drugs, the broken justice system that underlines the, the horrific violence that goes on in the streets of our city in Chicago. There is the racism which we 
No flows both directions across that divide. We've been reminded of that also in recent days. There is the multi-billion dollar scourge of pornography wrecking millions of people's capacity to look at other human beings as holding the image of God, as being God's kids. There's the stunning depravity of so much of what passes as entertainment these days. There's the continuing infanticide. There's the scourge of human trafficking going on right here in our own region. There is the insufficient stewardship of God's creation and even of our own bodies. And I could go on and on till you threw me out of here. But the time is ripe. It's always ripe to do right. If you know our church's mission program, then you know that as one congregation, we're trying. We're trying to do right. We're involved to some extent in addressing some of these issues because we know they're both spiritual and social problems, and we know that God cares about the whole. But the honest conviction that I feel from God is that we aren't yet quite involved enough. We haven't brought anything like the full force of the creative potential of this remarkable congregation to bear upon some of the specific needs of our time. And so without advancing solutions yet, I just want to start some question asking. I want to pose some questions in closing to spark conversation in our church that I hope will be fertile conversation in the days to come that we'll wrestle with these questions until God gives us answers and directs our path even further. So here's question number one. Where do you see our society, where do you personally see our society living badly out of sync with the life of the kingdom of heaven as you see God picturing it in the scriptures? What particularly moves your heart with sadness at how out of sync it is with the picture of the kingdom of heaven we see in the Bible. Secondly, what steps can you and I take to educate ourselves even further about one of the most glaring issues? Just pick one. What could we do, what could you and I do to really get to know that issue, the underlying factors that feed the problem? What could we do? Thirdly, finally, Why are we waiting to be the agents of hope that Christ commissioned us to be? How could our church be even more like the early church than it is today? In view of God's heart for people, in view of his stated plan to redeem the whole of creation, I believe we need to recover the passionate purpose for which the early church lived its life because the time is ripe to help set more of this world right. Please pray with me. Again we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And move us, we pray, Lord, to be agents 
in an even deeper way of that glorious, good, and redemptive will. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.